0: This is ASHA Voices, I'm JD Gray. June is Dysphagia Awareness Month, and on the podcast, two SLPs invite you to rethink how clinicians approach swallowing disorders. From the words they use to how to approach conversations with physicians, advice, and Alicia Vos advocate for taking the fear out of dysphagia treatment. And that may start with the language we use.
1: Aspiration turning into pneumonia or turning into dehydration or malnutrition those are things that we can't control and we can't predict but when we say safe and unsafe it appears that we can
0: hear what they say a person-centered approach looks like and why it's important to assess a swallow in relation to the whole person plus we discuss the results of a survey the duo co-authored in 2021 it looks at how often slps consult registered dietitians and they share why they think the results May point to a big opportunity. I'm JD Gray, and this is Asha Voices. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's updated tool, Cultural Competence Check-ins. Find opportunities for reflection and growth with these one-sheet resources at on.asha.org/cc. Joining me now are two SLPs imagining more for clinicians who work with people with swallowing disorders, Ed Vice and Alicia Vos. Ed Vice is a clinical consultant at IOP Medical, a medical manufacturing company that produces biofeedback tools. He spent more than 20 years working with swallowing disorders. Alicia Vos is a postdoctoral associate in the University of Florida's Breathing Research and Therapeutic Center. Both guests are presenters at ASHA's online conference, Controversies and Consensus in Dysphagia Management. The encore of the March conference begins August 3rd. Find details at asha.org. We begin our conversation by discussing how to define what a functional swallow is, a subject that immediately began to introduce the role of subjectivity in treatment. Ed says, in his opinion, a functional swallow is defined as the ability to maintain nutrition and hydration and that the patient is satisfied with their quality of life. He says, quote, it's really less about the mechanics, and it's more about the patient's response, end quote. And Alicia added that the goals of the patient may influence how someone defines the term. There are many ways to look at a functional swallow.
2: As a researcher, sometimes my lens can be really focused on the biomechanics of swallowing.
0: Alicia Vos,
2: How the different cartilages move and the muscle activation of different aspects of the swallow. And that's just one piece, right? There's also layering in when we look at the bolus and how it moves through the mouth and through the pharynx and thinking about is this picture of this patient swallow one that's going to meet their nutritional needs, that's going to meet their needs in regards to their quality of life. Eating is, is pleasure. How does that layer into thinking about what's functional for this patient? Sometimes we can all have a a narrow lens in what we focus on, but taking a step back and looking at the whole picture of the patient, so the biomechanics of the swallow, quality of life, pleasure, nutrition, hydration, all of these factor into a larger picture. All of the pieces are just as important. But it's developing the semantics that when we talk about swallowing, what is it that we're talking about? Are we talking about the mechanics? Are we talking about... The function? Are we talking about the end goal of nutrition? I, th- I think it's just important that we declare what what we're talking about because swallowing has, is multifaceted.
0: Right. Your presentation was about semantics as part of the online conference. It was called Normal, Safe, and Efficient Swallowing Beyond the Semantics. The words you discussed in the presentation, they, they kind of reminded me of the old game "shoots and ladders that, you know, you might use one of those words and end up a little bit further ahead than you necessarily intended to or maybe in a different place. So what do clinicians risk losing or what do they have to gain from using some of these quick reference words like risk, safe, or normal?
1: I think one of the things that we can gain is prestige by using words that are trigger words in the medical community. So if we say a patient is unsafe and our decisions can make them safe or our recommendations can make them safe, then it, then it seems to place a, a big importance on what we do and the decisions that we make. When in reality, we have no idea if the decisions that we make will make a difference for the patient. Only time will tell.
2: You know, In the fast-paced world of medicine and, and working in these environments, I think what it does is it oversimplifies recommendations by trying to place patients in buckets or place a swallow in a bucket, right? So if we say safe versus unsafe, it's a way that almost to just oversimplify the communication and say, uh, instead of saying, oh, well, on, on this consistency, they aspirated and we trial this consistency. It's like, oh, well, this was safe and this was unsafe. It's almost quick. It's easy. Physicians understand it. What we lose in oversimplifying that style of communication and our recommendations is it leaves, it's subject to wide interpretation. So what I mean when I say that swallow or that consistency is safe, a physician, a nurse, a patient is interpreting that with a very different meaning than what I'm saying. I may be saying safe means they didn't aspirate. As a speech pathologist, I think a lot of times when we say safe, that's what we're trying to convey. And then maybe unsafe is a consistency that was aspirated, right? Like we're just trying to oversimplify and put into two buckets. What a patient or a physician may hear is truly what the word unsafe means, which is there's going to be a negative consequence. If I don't follow this recommendation, it's literally not safe.
1: Right. But we don't know that, you know, and that's the, that's the thing that we keep pushing is we can't use that word because we don't know if what we saw in imaging will result in a negative consequence.
0: When you're talking about aspiration. Right. Right,
1: Aspiration turning into pneumonia or turning into dehydration or malnutrition you know, those are things that we can't control and we can't predict. But when we say safe and unsafe, it appears that we can and that we do know.
2: I guess a kind of a simplified way to summarize this is we need to step away from language, in my opinion, that unsafe equals aspiration. Because I think in our field, we use the term synonymously. Unsafe consistencies meaning aspirated consistencies, right? And that's not what that means, unsafe conveys something about the patient's medical condition and what their response might be to aspiration when we don't know what the response will be to aspiration. So to to call it something that's unsafe, that's not what we mean. <laughs> I don't think that's what we should right.
1: be <laughs> right. And, and it's not just a clinician's problem. It's also a research-based problem.
2: So instead of saying safe versus unsafe, let's be more precise about what we mean, aspirators versus non-aspirators, right? So in research, a lot of times we're comparing groups of individuals and individuals may be grouped into, okay, this bucket here of patients maybe were healthy, they were non-aspirators. This is a group of patients who on maybe some consistencies, whatever the circumstances, they aspirated, we're putting them in a bucket of, of aspirators. When we interchange that with safe versus unsafe, then that adds a whole different level of interpretation. It's a subjective term, we're implying risk, we're implying um, a response versus just being clear about what we're saying, aspirators versus non-aspirators. I think that's just a good example highlighting like how saying the same thing can have very different meaning and in interpretation depending on who the audience is.
0: I would imagine many patients, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if they heard unsafe, they wouldn't think immediately of aspiration, they'd probably think of choking.
1: Yes, I would agree. Or some other negative consequence, which typically in our field we would tell them pneumonia and death. But at the end of it all is that it's instilling fear in the patient and in the therapist too, which is probably not the best approach. Imagine if a neurosurgeon is afraid to open somebody's brain or you know, other medical professionals operate in fear-based language. It's just it's not healthy for the patient or for the practitioner.
0: Is there anything you might recommend when an SLP approaches someone for an assessment or otherwise how they might change their critical thinking to address that patient?
1: So I think that the first step and the value of a clinical assessment is to gather data I think a clinical assessment doesn't really reveal much about how the patient is swallowing, but it gives us an opportunity to assess their health status, their medications, their wishes, their ideas of what they want as an outcome in this situation. And then when we integrate that into the piece of actually looking at their swallowed and imaging, then we can create a bigger picture. So we need that piece from the clinical assessment to gather all the data about the big picture of the patient and not just the minutia of their swallow.
2: I think a practical piece of advice is to change your lens of perspective. So for example, I think sometimes as swallowing specialists, when we approach a patient, we start at the swallow and work our way back to the patient layering on. So we Say, I I can't even consider, I don't know, I don't know anything about this patient. I can't make any decisions until I see their swallow, right? So we take them down to the x-ray, and then we start at the swallow, and then we layer in, well, what does the patient want? Or what does their medical status suggest? What is their ability to fight infection? Then we layer, layer in everything else as like sprinkles. I think a good way to kind of reshift this is starting at the patient and saying, What's the core value here? What does this patient want? What, what do they desire? And then working through, what's their medical status? Like, what, why are they in the hospital? What's their GI status, their mobility status? And then at the end is the swallow, where that's kind of the piece that kind of brings everything together. Now we can add this objective information to helping the patient, helping the practitioners advise the patient on what the next step would be whether that's what the next step is for rehabilitation. Maybe it's none. Maybe that's not what the patient wants. Maybe it's about their diets. Maybe it's about their eating settings. There's so many things, but I think we have to start with the patient first.
1: Right. And respect their autonomy in whatever decisions. And so not just give the negative picture. Oh, you know, you're going to aspirate and die if you don't drink this glue. But actually tell, so here are the positives of making these choices and here are the negatives of making these choices. And really laying out all of the information so that patients can make an informed decision and not try to force our values and judgments on this patient but allow them to make their own decisions fully informed.
2: Yeah. And now circling back to the beginning of our conversation, with all this in mind, imagine walking to a, into a patient's room and you haven't really had much of a conversation with the patient about what they want and you just you did the fluoro or you did the fees and you walk in and you say, "Okay, Mr. Jones, these consistencies are safe and these consistencies are unsafe." Like now, now, like, how do we go? Where do we go from there? You've just already conveyed to the patient that something is unsafe for them. In what world am I going to ignore my medical practitioner, whether it's, you know, my primary care or a specialist when they tell me something is unsafe? right? The only time I hear that from a doctor is like a medication interaction or something that is going to be really, really harmful. And they say, it's really unsafe for you to be taking these medications at the same time. That's like, okay, I need to really listen, take this seriously. They're the experts. When we walk into a room and say, these consistencies are unsafe, when maybe that's not true, what does safety mean? We're really biasing the patient because they trust us with our knowledge and our expertise we really have to be careful about the words that we're using. It can really, you know, alter the patient's perspective and maybe even have them alter what their wishes are just because they heard that word.
0: The example you've used is of potential for aspiration as being something that's sometimes described as unsafe. But I understand that can vary based on who is the person that's aspirating? This is where you're talking about looking at the patient first and then looking at the swallow.
1: Right, because I was in Alicia's lab at the University of Florida participating in a study, and she was working the fluoro, and we found out that I'm a silent aspirator. Certainly the consequences can be different. We were all shocked. I didn't know it, you know, <laughs> that that was happening. They had no- didn't anticipate it that I have no negative consequences and I don't plan on altering my diet or doing therapy or doing anything different.
2: And for those of you who don't know, Ed, he's not 113 years old.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, it's not, you know, age related changes. It's just that occasionally in my normal swallow that I aspirate and it, And it so happened that we captured it on fluoro, which could be the same case with our patients, that we just so happened to catch their worst performance on fluoro. And then we start making decisions based on their worst performance. And I would dare to say if the average SLP saw my swallow, that they would, because my epiglottis doesn't always invert either, that they would think that something needed to be done for me.
2: Yeah. I can recall when I first started practicing. I had this mentality, and I think a lot of speech pathologists do, and we could spend a whole podcast talking about the reasons why, but it's this idea of aspiration not on my watch, right? Like, I am in charge of protecting patients from aspiration, so I will do whatever I can to avoid that. Sometimes at extreme measures, having them do so many swallowing maneuvers or restricting A certain consistency or putting them on a thin liquid or alternative nutrition, whatever we have to do to prevent them from aspirating and not thinking about all of the consequences of every decision that we make along that way. So I think it's a culture shift in our field to really step back and not consider ourselves the diet keepers per se and not consider ourselves like the
1: the aspiration the stoppers, aspiration
2: stoppers yes, <laughs> and taking like maybe not even three steps back but like 25 steps back and you know bringing our value as the swallowing experts but swallowing e- experts in the context of a whole host of other things that also have a whole host of experts involved in this patient's care there's a lot of people that should have a seat at the table when we talk about rehab recommendations, when we talk about diet recommendations, when we talk about plan of care for patients, even what facility we recommend they go to, how frequently they get rehab, none of these things should be made in isolation. And there's so much value in engaging in other professionals and helping us make that decision with the patient.
0: We're going to take a quick break. And we'll be back with more from Ed Bice and Alicia Vos. Support for Asha Voices comes from Ash's updated tool, Cultural Competence Check-Ins. Cultural Competence, Cultural Humility, and Cultural Responsiveness require an ongoing commitment. Invest in yourself and your clients when you use these one-page resources. Designed to help you reflect and grow, find all four Cultural Competence Check-Ins at on.asha.org slash cc. In the second half of my conversation with SLPs Ed Bice and Alicia Vos, we further discuss collaboration and working as a part of a team. Ed and Alicia make the benefits of this approach clear, but what changes when working at a large healthcare facility? In these cases, SLPs might be thinking of what expectations are being placed on them as a clinician. Ed says, it's important to admit what we don't know and promote discussion with others working in healthcare, like physicians or registered dietitians. Alicia goes on to say, our understanding of nutrition has changed in the past decade, citing the role of micronutrients and macronutrients, among other factors.
2: Our practice should reflect that the conversations about food and diets and consistencies needs to be much more comprehensive, you know, bringing in professionals who have expertise in nutrition and what certain patients need based on their diagnoses. So I, th- I think that th- that's part of it is that a part of why probably Ed and I emphasize this so much is that if we're going to be talking about rehab, what you eat is a huge part of rehab and healing. (laughs) Overall
1: rehab, not just swallowing swallowing therapy, therapy, right? Physical therapy, occupational therapy, just wellness in general and our profession. We're not trained in nutrition at all, but we're making all these big decisions that impact nutrition often in a silo. And I think that's problematic.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's more than just, you know, sometimes we make decisions about food that may not seem like a big deal. Like recommending that a patient maybe. With certain solids, it, needs, it would be helpful if it were more moist or cut up a little bit for patients that maybe have cognitive impairments. Like there's a lot of small environmental like adjustments we can make. But when we start getting into recommending patients are on thickened liquids, that they can't drink water in a thin state, these are massive, massive changes to what a patient can consume and is really gonna have an impact on their overall wellness and their ability to thrive. And those conversations need to really not be taken lightly, in my opinion.
0: In 2021, Alicia and Ed, along with another SLP, SLP Christine Gaelic, published results from a survey in the journal Speech, Language, and Hearing. That survey looked specifically at how often SLPs consult registered dietitians, or RDs, and they concluded that RDs were being underutilized by SLPs.
2: Overall, we looked at 359 speech pathologists and asked them just, hey, in the past year, how frequently did you consult a dietitian prior to making a diet recommendation? And what we saw was a little over 40% of all of the speech pathologists said never or rarely, meaning less than 10% of the time was a dietitian consulted before making a diet recommendation, whereas only about 10% said usually or all the time, meaning over 70% of the time, we do make that recommendation and, you know, kind of spattered in between. But that was really, really kind of eye opening, especially because when we looked at work setting, and particularly, for example, in acute care, where there's almost always access to a dietitian at some level, to be able to have a conversation, it was still about 40% of acute care clinicians said that they never consult a dietitian prior to making a diet recommendation. And these are for really ill patients in the ICU or in acute care where perhaps a diet recommendation is really, really critical as they're in, the, in a really acute stage of healing. We published this paper and basically said, like, this is a great opportunity for improvement. This is kind of a missed opportunity to have a conversation if, if most or many speech pathologists are not taking advantage of that. So we hoped it just kind of opened up a dialogue for those who, who work in these settings to just engage in a conversation about these recommendations and not putting the weight all on ourselves.
1: And what we found in our study was that although, yes, we would anticipate that certain settings would restrict access, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if they had direct access to RDs on a regular basis or if it was very difficult for them to get RDs. The amount of time that we engaged an RD in our decision making was the same regardless of setting.
2: And interestingly, 46% of the SLPs that we surveyed said that they'd taken a course on the impact of modified diets on hydration or nutrition. And for those individuals, they were 2.4 times more likely to have consulted a dietitian prior to making a diet recommendation, meaning there's something to be said about educating speech pathologists on just this conversation here about the impact of nutrition on health and plasticity and rehab. And I think when you appreciate that, it really makes you take a step back and say, wow, this really is a conversation I should be having with other stakeholders and with the patient to really make a team decision with the patient about these types of recommendations. So I think that this isn't all a negative thing. I think there's a tremendous opportunity to incorporate and to partner with dietitians to increase our education and just awareness of the impact that we're making with these types of recommendations.
0: Can we talk a little bit more about informal pressures that might be put on an SLP who's maybe working in a large healthcare facility as far as like productivity or time? How does one go about advocating for themselves and for their patient to say, hey, I need a little more time. I need to talk to an RD. I need to change the way that I'm providing information to a physician about aspiration, for example? Any tips for that, for advocacy?
2: I have two tips. One is let me just say this does not need to be an hour long conference conversation, right? I think that many times mind you a dietitian their sole goal is to think about the nutrition of their patient, right? In my experience this can be a 5 minute conversation that you have over the phone, that you have on the unit in the hallway or meeting the dietitian at the patient's bedside saying, "Hey, when are you going to see this patient?" I'll come meet you at the same time and see the patient right after. Let's have a quick conversation. So these conversations don't need to be lengthy, lengthy periods of time that take away from your productivity. The other piece of advice I would give is use the power of documentation. If you're feeling the pressure to write a diet recommendation in your note after you see a patient because there's some sort of forced template line that requires that you put in some sort of recommendation, Write a note that says in there in all caps or bold describing the swallow, the mechanics, and then writing in pending discussion with patient, physician, dietitian, whoever the stakeholders are regarding a team and patient consensus on rehab and diet recommendations moving forward. And I think that is a great way to keep reiterating to the team, to the dietitian, to everybody who reads your notes putting in, you know, and adding a note as to why a conversation need to consider patients, pulmonary status, medical comorbidities, diet restrictions, like maybe they're on a cardiac diet, or maybe they're diabetic, or maybe they can only take pills a certain way, like there's so many factors. So using the power of documentation to just keep reiterating, reiterating, reiterating why a team decision is so important in this context.
1: Repetition matters, and I will say when um, working in acute care on a PRN basis, when I don't make a diet recommendation, <laughs> that it creates this whole domino effect because now the physician is actually going to call me and engage with me because I didn't make the recommendation that they anticipated. And so what I found is it allows me the opportunity then to speak with the physician because they initiate the conversation because something happened that they didn't anticipate.
2: Yeah. Sometimes you're going to be met with resistance from physicians who are just like, just tell me what to put a diet order in. And, you know, one thing that I would say, which I have said before, is if it were you, you, the physician or the nurse or whoever aspirated on two or three swallows of a consistency, would you want me to recommend that you? eat nothing by mouth, and they would probably say, oh, gosh, no, like, I, no way would I, you know, restrict myself in that way. And you say, so context matters then, right? The background of the individual, the context, their situation. So you're telling me that then it matters. So we need to have a conversation about this patient and what their their factors are that play into these roles. It's just because they're in the hospital. It's not a blanket recommendation that aspiration means X residue means X. It's not a flow chart of a diet recommendation. Oh, they passed the threshold of three aspiration events. So that means this is your diet. Can't have that consistency. It doesn't work that way. If it did, we'd be technicians, right? We just follow a flow chart, but we're not.
1: Unfortunately, I think sometimes we kind of had that flowchart in our head and that we operate as technicians because that's what's expected of us rather than advocating for our profession, for our patients and for ourselves to be pathologists.
2: And I'm not here to say that diet recommendations aren't part of our profession. I'm not saying we wipe our hands clean and say, sorry, not in my expertise. Go figure it out. That is absolutely not the approach that I recommend. I think we have a lot A lot, a lot to offer. We should be one of the primary stakeholders at the table and having these conversations. What I'm saying is that it shouldn't just be all on us. That's a burden. That's a burden on us to make way bigger decisions than what's appropriate on behalf of our patient.
0: What I'm hearing you say is there are going to be times where an SLP has the ability and the responsibility to use their education about nutrition as much as they can in the patient's best interest. But if there's something that the clinician doesn't know, it's good to consult someone with maybe more experience in that specific area.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we think about how the whole medical profession works. If you come into the hospital with a stroke, you see a neurologist. Your general practitioner doesn't try to manage that on their own. And so we need to incorporate, again, as Alicia has label them the stakeholders in this situation of people who are necessary to help make these decisions we don't just try to manage them on our own
2: we should follow suit with that model of not being the radiologist and not being the primary care physician and not being the swallowing expert and the nutrition expert and the pulmonary expert (laughs) right? Like, I think sometimes we take on all these roles that we just, that's, honestly, like, that's a burnout.
0: Well, I was just about to bring up burnout. We know burnout, you know, is heavily aligned with healthcare. I mean, I think that's where the word originated.
2: Oh, yeah. There's definitely a connection. And I think a huge piece of it is that we put so much weight on ourselves to make these decisions that I think it wears on us. Like, man, to talk about What a patient can and cannot eat psychologically, if you feel like it's all in your hands, that's heavy. That's heavy stuff.
1: Yeah. And I think that it's, like you said, a part of that we're accepting responsibility that's really not ours. And I think that we could gain a lot of respect and decrease this pressure and burnout if we interject ourselves into the entire system, rather than just doing what everyone expects of us.
2: And honestly, it's so much more fun to collaborate with colleagues. I hear a lot of speech pathologists say, I feel like I'm on an Island. I feel in a silo. I feel a burden. And I think a piece of it is that we're just on this Island, making decisions, so many decisions for patients and, and, Engaging with our colleagues and creating that collaborative environment is just so much more rewarding and fun and it gives you such job satisfaction and you really feel like you're serving your patients well when you're making recommendations and advising on behalf of a team versus yourself.
1: And I will say we started in the early 70s. 1972 was the first publication that a speech pathologist published about treating swallowing disorders. So we're 50 years in. And in the beginning, we thought that all aspiration would lead to consequences. And, and so we were birthed, our profession was birthed in that idea, and that changing people's diets, even when we didn't know the impact physiologically or biologically of what that was happening, that that was what we were there to do. But we have 50 years of information now To help us start shifting away from that kind of mindset and to start shifting to a more enabling and partnering with our patients mindset rather than being the driver of what must happen.
2: Yeah, I really love, there's a quote, one of my dear friends and colleagues, Dr. Rayleigh Robeson at the University of Wisconsin, we were having this conversation and, you know, in talking about the shift in how we approach patients, she said, As speech pathologists, we have a real opportunity for collaboration to prepare patients to swallow and eat the variety of foods necessary for function and survival. And I just love that wording that she says, we can help prepare patients, right? Like this is what, like baseline is, this is what they're going to do. Let's help prepare them to do that versus taking things away and being restrictive. Let's just help prepare them. Because at the end of the day, we, we need to eat for quality of life, for function and survival. And not to say that there's not, there's going to be the extreme cases at the end of the spectrum. But I think for the majority of the spectrum, we can be approaching our patients in a much more enabling way.
0: Hear more from Ed and Alicia as a part of the online conference, Controversies and Consensus in Dysphagia Management. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I highly recommend attending their presentations. They have so much more to share, and we just covered a bit of it in this episode. The conference begins August 3rd, and registration is open now. You can save $100 when you register by June 30th. Find details on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org slash podcast, or find the conference at asha.org podcast events. Also, check out the ASHA Leader print magazine and website. In the March-April 2022 issue, you'll find an article titled, How Do We Cultivate Critical Thinking in Dysphagia Decision-Making? In it, you can read stories from three clinicians who are reflecting on the role critical thinking plays in treating swallowing disorders. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's Cultural Competence Check-Ins, a resource designed to help you reflect and grow. Continue increasing your cultural competence, humility, and responsiveness. Learn more at on.asha.org slash cc. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.